Other than maybe shutting down Facebook or reinstituting the Fairness Doctrine, look it up, few things would improve discourse in our country more than educating people about how the economy actually works. So much of the vitriol we see, from the divide between rural and urban America, to anti-immigration sentiment, to debates about the corporate tax rate, are all rooted in some degree of economic misunderstanding. Presidents get way too much credit and blame. Truth is, they barely have more short-term influence over the job market, gas prices, and inflation than you do. The U.S. economy is absolutely massive. It's also extremely complex, and that makes it challenging from a political perspective. You can't thoroughly explain globalization and supply chains in a meme. It's easier to just blame a figurehead, an ethnic group, or some, quote, other whose economic fortunes are better than mine. We've even reduced the definition of a recession to an oversimplified equation, weaponized by whichever side of the political aisle benefits the most when it happens. We need to figure out how to make economics more approachable and more relatable for the average person. We need to stop talking about the economy and the U.S. population like it's one big monolith, easily measured by a single number or a chart. It's why I want you to meet my guest, Michelle Meyer. Michelle is the chief North American economist at MasterCard and one of the most influential people on Wall Street, Madison Avenue, and CNBC. She has an amazing gift to not only grasp economic complexity, but to explain it in ways everyone can relate to. Michelle is unalarmed about today's economic chaos, partly because it was predictable and partly because tried-and-true solutions are working. We talked about the rising prominence of women in economics and finance, the role of technology in improving productivity, and why I'm an idiot for not rinsing my dishes before I put them in the dishwasher. So turn off social media for a while and listen to my inspiring friend, Michelle Meyer, and me, the dumbest guy in the room. Michelle Meyer, it is so great to see you. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, I know this is a huge step up for you from CNBC, so congratulations <laughs> on that. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's really fun to be here with you, John. I'm excited. Well, I, I'm excited about it too. Uh, this is pretty much like generally my favorite topic of all the things that I get to talk about <laughs> on the podcast. So all right, right out of the gate on a scale of mildly pessimistic to abject terror, how do you feel about the economy right now? Can I cut the difference between the two? Um, sure. I, <laughs> yeah, it's a scale. So somewhere, you know, ab mildly pessimistic is a one, abject terror is a 10, like whatever. All right, I'm going to go with a five. I'm going to go right in the middle because I do think there's clear signs that the economy is transitioning to a state where growth is moderated and recession risks are more elevated. That is very clear in the data. But at the same time, I think the adjustment in many ways is necessary because the economy that we experienced last year was highly unusual and was not sustainable. Real GDP growth last year in excess of 5% is well above what the underlying trend in the economy is and create an environment where we were running in excesses. We were creating imbalances. We were threatening to stoke a real inflation spike. And, and frankly, we're, we've seen a lot of that. So I think what we're in right now is an economy that's trying to rebalance. And by rebalancing, yes, you do see pockets of weakness. Yes, you do see risks that you can have an outright contraction, but there are business cycles <laughs> and business cycles exist for a reason. So you said the word, I was going to ask about it anyway. Why do we struggle so hard to define what a recession is? What is your definition? Yeah. So you kind of have that really casual definition. I think it was one of the former presidents said it, blanking on who at the moment, but that a recession is when your neighbor loses 
his or her job, but depression is when you lose your job. And the idea is that a recession is when you feel a significant amount of economic strain, that you feel like your current personal finances, your future personal finances have fundamentally changed. And you're no longer as secure about your job. You're no longer as secure about your income stream. You're no longer as secure about your balance sheet and your wealth. And you change your behavior and the economy goes through an adjustment. I think the reason right now that you have this big recession debate is because in the first two quarters of the year, we did see a contraction in real GDP when measured as a quarter over quarter change. So Q1 and Q2 both declined. And that is considered kind of a casual definition of recession, two negative quarters of GDP. But it's not the formal definition. The formal definition is from the National Bureau of Economic Research, the NBER, that actually doesn't look at GDP. They look at other variables. They look at the measures of production, of outright jobs, of real income, real spending. When you look at these broader measures, the economy is not in a recession. The economy is still very much expanding. So I think that disconnect is in part, again, a function of this unprecedented cycle where in Q1, we had this huge inventory cycle that was a big drag to growth. We had a massive increase in imports, which was a big drag to GDP. So GDP was brought down in part by these adjustments that needed to happen post-pandemic. Q2 had more fundamental weakness, housing pulling back, parts of business investment pulling back, but real consumer spending was still positive. Yeah. The layperson definition of recession, which I don't know how it became the layperson definition of just two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, right? And maybe it's because economics are so hard for people to understand the complexity of it. And that's Mm -hmm. such a reductive way to describe it. And then now, unfortunately, it's being dragged into the same thing everything else in the country is getting dragged into, which is the sort of like political tribalism is it's like, is it politically convenient for you to call it a recession or not call it a recession, right? So it's hard to sift, mm. sift through all that. But it's great to hear that. It, I didn't even know that, that, right, actually GDP isn't even truly factored into the kind of technical mm-hmm. definition of it. Another word you said, that I'm going to bastardize a little bit, is you said <laughs> unprecedented. Is anything about this precedented? <laughs> Right. I know I know as like yeah. as academics, historians, economists, they tend to try to like calibrate the present to something that happened in the past. But yeah. Is that possible right now? Yes. I mean, there's aspects about the cycle that are typical. One would be that it is a cycle <laughs> that right. you know, the areas where you have the most amount of excesses, you tend to see the highest chance of reduction, right? So what comes up comes down. You also do have a typical nature of a cycle in that the Fed is hiking interest rates in order to cool down the economy to achieve stable prices, stable inflation. And that interest rate shock is transmitting into the economy in ways that it normally would. So think about the sector right now that's getting hit the hardest from the Fed. It's the housing market because that is interest sensitive. People oftentimes have to get financing. They need a mortgage. And if mortgage rates are 300 basis points higher in a matter of months, all of a sudden that equation really changes. And you see a drop in housing demand. You see potential softening in home prices. That's playing out in the data. Interest rate increases are going to impact financial conditions, right? Markets are going to move when you see big adjustments in interest rates. Companies are going to respond with the change in the cost of borrowing. So I think what's somewhat more typical would be that 
on the surface, we have an inflation shock. How we got there is not typical. That's unprecedented. But we have an inflation shock and the Fed is using their typical tools to fight that inflation shock. And it's impacting the economy as it would historically. So you think those tools are working or at least having their intended impact? Yeah, I do. I mean, look, they're not perfect. The Fed will acknowledge themselves that interest rates can be a blunt tool because they're impacting the economy. It's hard to pick out certain sectors of the economy to really drive, right? So if you see a problem around, people often say, okay, the Fed, how do you deal with inequality issues? How do you deal with how recessions impact different demographic groups differently? The Fed can't control for that. That's fiscal policy. That's the nature of the economy. But I think in terms of what the Fed is trying to achieve, which is to take out some of the froth in parts of the economy that have run too far too fast, I would argue that it does look like it's having the intended results. Now, are they done? Is the Fed done? That's highly unlikely because you still have very high inflation right now. You still have a labor market, which is hot, like red hot. And they want to get to stable. They want to get to stability. That's stable jobs, stable prices, a smoothing of that business cycle. When those words came out of my mouth, I think it was a very unintended sort of like tone of incredulity when I asked it about inflation. <laughs> right? and, that, and that wasn't actually my point at all. I, and I, again, this podcast is called The Dumbest Guy in the Room for a reason. Like, I don't claim to understand all of that. I was genuinely interested to get your take on, is it is it having its effect? Because yeah. if we can use precedented solutions to solve somewhat of an unprecedented set mm. of problems, like that's good, mm. right? Like we don't yeah. have to, invent, we don't have to invent new things. So that's promising. All right. So I want to, I want to step back a little. I made a joke earlier about you being on CNBC. When I was trying to just do some research for this interview, I Googled you and I just like, I would have been like binging stranger things from beginning to end to watch all the appearances that you have. <laughs> You've reached this amazing pinnacle in an you know incredibly high profile position at a high profile company, right? And when you talk, it's important, right? It's not just mm-hmm. that you're appealing to listeners or viewers of a television program, but what you say has a lot of influence, often sort of unintended influence, maybe or, or unexpected influence at least, because your perspective on the economy can influence people's decision making, right? And that's just such yeah. a powerful place to be. Tell us a little bit about like how did you get there, right? So maybe a bit about your background. When I first met you, you were it was in your past role at a prior company, but you've just kind of elevated and elevated. Like where did it start? When did you kind of decide you wanted to be an economist or or were interested in the finance sector? Like how did that sort of all come to be for you? Yeah, sure. So I hope you didn't actually go ahead and binge all my old interviews. And if you did, you might be able to tell where I got the forecast right and where I was a little (laughs) bit off, as most economists have that. So a little bit about me and my career trajectory. So I've always been much more inclined towards math. That's just how my brain works, more quantitatively focused. So I've always had that appeal. And when I went to college, I thought I'd be a math and computer science major. That made a lot of sense to me. My dad is a professor of computer science and has his PhD in math. So I was following in his footsteps. It was great. But you know, once I started with the coursework, I really had this craving to bring it back to real world experiences. It just felt a little bit too abstract or theoretical. And coding was a little bit frustrating, to be perfectly honest. I was like, what are we going to do with this? You know? So I took my first economics class and I loved it. And then I just continued. I fell in love with the discipline. 
I loved how you can actually have a career focus on economics. And I was really determined to achieve that. So I went to graduate school as well in economics. And then I started at Lehman Brothers in their economics group. And that's when I would say round two of my education started, which is to learn how to be a business economist, which is very, very different, right? Because you can graduate school, you can learn all about the theory, you can learn about some of the idea of the application, and you can learn about all these kind of case studies or problem sets, as we called it then. But it's a whole nother story when you're trying to utilize economics to help people in the real world. And at Lehman Brothers, it was trying to help people in the real world, but who were really trying to understand it from how markets would move off of it. And I was very fortunate to be hired by somebody who I think is the greatest economist on Wall Street and in the business world. That's Ethan Harris, who was my manager. I worked for him pretty much my whole career until I left recently at Bank of America, which was a difficult departure. But I learned a ton from him. I learned how to synthesize information, how to write in a way that's appealing, how to explain concepts in a way that could, again, attract people to economics from all walks of life. And that, I think, is what's really critical. Economics is something I truly believe that could help people regardless of what they're doing in their lives, their career. It's not just for market participants. So I just continued in that movement. So from Lehman Brothers, I went through the financial crisis, which was obviously very painful and incredible learning experience as well. Moved to Barclays and then joined Bank of America in, I guess, 2010. And I was at Bank of America for the last 11 years. And I rose up to the position of the chief U.S. economist, which was absolutely amazing. And I'm so grateful for all my friends and colleagues at Bank of America to put that trust in me and to give me that position and to allow me to represent them publicly. As you said, to go out, speak on TV at conferences and present the views about the economy. I truly would have to pinch myself and say, I can't believe I'm actually in this position. This is my title and this is what I'm doing. And I'm doing what I love, which is economics. And I get to continue to advance and challenge myself. And I felt like I really was learning every single day. And then about six months ago, I got the opportunity for my next challenge, which was to move over to MasterCard to be the chief economist for North America for a newly developed economics institute. And it was a really hard decision because I did feel at home. I felt at place. I felt trusted at Bank of America and I felt surrounded by people that I grew up with, but I was ready to take the leap. And part of that was because I really wanted to go to an area where I can help people understand about economics from a little bit of a different perspective, a bit more of the company perspective, right? How businesses should be thinking about economics as they plan for their future, for their revenue growth, for their forecasts, how they should navigate the business cycle, how to think about the Fed. Whereas in my prior roles, it was always about how market participants would be thinking about the economy. And now it's about how real economic actors are thinking about the economy. And that was really, really appealing to me. And I wanted to have that new experience, a new challenge. And it has been amazing. It's been fascinating to see what the Economics Institute is doing here. It is growing fast. I am surrounded by people who love and appreciate data. They're data scientists or econometricians or coders, like the amazing magic that they can do with data and visualizations has really blown me away. And the storytelling that I can do with the economy here has been that much better because of that data. And then I would also argue just the response internally and from clients has been so, so rewarding because 
it is a weird economy and people want to understand where the path is going. So sorry, that was a very long response, but no, that's my story. <laughs> it was awesome. And I've like thought of six questions to ask you and I hope, okay. I, can, I, hope I can remember half of them. I, I, <laughs> uh, maybe I'll work backwards a little bit. You said one thing that is a huge part of like the ethos of our company and the way that I try to communicate when you talked about the practicality of economics, right? Relative to sort of other areas of like math and right. Yeah. Like, I feel like a, a huge movement we can enable in this country and in the world is the more people understand how the economy works, right? Even we got back to this topic of recession, which again, seems like people's definitions vary based on their political affiliations, which is part of the problem. And I think you do a remarkably good job of this when you speak on television or publicly is making the insights about the economy that you have relatable to people, mm -hmm. right? Like we always tell our team here that an, an insight is ever more impactful, the more relatable that you can make it personally yeah. relatable. You can make it yeah. to a person, right? Mm -hmm. That quote you mentioned earlier, and I wish I could remember who the president was either. We'll figure it out in the show notes because I'm usually pretty <laughs> good at that stuff. But yeah, recessions when your neighbor lost your job and depressions when you did. Like, okay, yeah. that's sort of, I get it, right? It doesn't have to necessarily have a technical, the technical definition to the average person shouldn't matter. It's like, what's mm -hmm. the feeling associated with my personal lot and all of that? And so I think you do a great job of that. And also too, I think it's so cool, the position you're in now in a company like MasterCard, because you don't just have, you know, you're not just looking at like macroeconomic forces, but you have such great visibility into like where and how people are spending their money, how much they're willing to pay for things and weren't willing to pay before. And it's just like, a, a, I think you've got a much like broader tapestry view of, of the consumer, which I think is super cool. I want to go way back to the beginning of the conversation or that, that answer rather. You said sort of you were always into math. Like when you say always, short answer to this one, like five 10? Yeah. When, yeah. When, yeah. Right. So like from the beginning now, very now beginning. I, did, yeah. I didn't know that about your dad, which I think yeah. probably had a pretty strong influence over that. But yeah. my family, my wife and I in particular are really big proponents of addressing the issue of women in STEM. We have two daughters. We watched sort of how public school math was not sort of geared toward their way of learning and they got scared of math and it drove us mm -hmm. insane. Right. So maybe it was your relationship with your father that helped you Maybe you didn't see those problems the way you were taught, or, but mm. like we had in our first season, we had in consecutive interviews, we had Andrea Brimmer, who's the CMO of Ally and mm -hmm. Meredith Verdone, who is your former colleague in yeah. America. Yeah. And we talked about this sort of issue of like, on one hand, sort of the prevalence of men in financial services, but then of course, the actually remarkable prevalence of women in CMO roles in, in those banks. Right. Mm -hmm. We talked a lot about how and why women tend to be better at marketing, largely because they have a stronger sense of empathy and so on. But in your field, I mean, obviously, I don't have to tell you this. You're in the minority, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> so, did you feel that sort of math hurdles, you extra hurdles you felt like you had to climb even from like early when you were began learning math as a kid? Did your dad maybe help you overcome some of that? Like, not the maybe the way that it was taught, or did you feel that at some point or never? So when I was young, I didn't feel it at all. And maybe it was just my household. I mean, we played math games on car rides. <laughs> like I played yeah. chess. <laughs> like I just like, I didn't, I don't know. It was me and my sister and it was all girls with my dad and there was no difference, right? It was just, I enjoyed math and I enjoyed working on math problems with my dad. And that was just what we did. And I think in school as well, I didn't think about it. And I, certainly not elementary school. I mean, I would think probably looking back, some of the best math whizzes were girls. It was not an issue at all. We, we truly did not think about it. 
I would say probably the first time it became aware for me was when I was taking my core comps in graduate school. So those like fundamental math, economic, like micro, macro. And a lot of the students were older, were from different countries. And it was overwhelmingly men. Like I remember the first time I just like looked around the room. It's like, huh, there aren't many women. And I'm also very young. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the combination of those things, I was like, oh, I feel a little out of place. So that I, I kind of got a sense of it, but it didn't really bother me. And then when I started at Lehman Brothers, I did have like a little bit of a, a hot moment that wasn't great, which is when I first started, I was on the research floor and I remember walking and this was like the early mid 2000s. So I remember walking around the floor around all the offices and there was only one office occupied by a female. Everybody else was men. I was like, what? That's that resonated. That like took me a moment to absorb. But I have to say it has changed a lot. It hasn't gone to where we need it to be by any means, but I have felt a tangible difference. And even on Wall Street, there's been a tangible difference. And I think it's intentional. Within the economics community, I also think that there's been a number of really significant changes. I mean, think about the greatest economist in the world, Janet Yellen. (laughs) She's a female. And for a moment, we had some of the most powerful economists, women, right, between Janet Yellen and Christine Lagarde setting monetary policy for two of the biggest nations. The Federal Reserve Board, there are a lot more women now on the board. And again, these are all intentional changes. Even again, within Wall Street, the economics community, there's still more men that hold these types of positions, the chief economist positions, but women are gearing up as well. And there's more and more. So the good news is that there has been a tangible change since I started my career until now, but there's still lots more work to be done. But I am positive. I am encouraged by what's to come. I think that we're on the right path. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that. And it always sort of takes the trailblazers and ceiling breakers to kind of push those things forward. And you're one of those people. You should yeah. be, you set a tremendous example. It's You should Thank be super you. proud of that. It's cool. So back to the economy, I guess, or economics. You have kids. We talked earlier again about their sort of relatability of the information. So you sort of, you see these numbers, you see these this data, you see company behaviors or whatever, but you also see like the behaviors of your household. Mm-hmm. And do you have any like observations or maybe hypotheses yet about like how like this emerging generation of people, they're obviously behaving differently. To some extent, that's a life stage thing that everybody these ages, how they've behaved, right? But do you see, again, more unprecedented things coming because of some maybe some unprecedented kind of consumer behaviors that you have visibility into? And that isn't necessarily just about your kids. I know your kids are young, but yeah. like, how much do you think about the impact of like generational changes on where the economy is going long-term? So I think you touched on something really important, which is just how the demographic dynamics are in part just a function of timing, right? So there was all this discussion about the millennials 10 years ago. The millennials were a fundamentally different generation. They were never going to get married. They were never going to have kids. They were never going to buy homes. Well, they've done a lot of that. They've just done it later. Right. So it's that I think some of this just has gotten pushed out. So maybe in, you know, baby boom generation, which was also a transformational generation in many ways, but that generation, you had fewer women in the workforce, you had earlier marriage rates, you had earlier rates of childbirth, and people would buy homes earlier and move out to the suburbs quick. Like those types of dynamics were playing out. And then you got to millennials, people were staying in urban centers longer, they were getting married later, they were having fewer kids. 
But ultimately, you did see a lot of that show through in the data where those big life events happen. They just happen at different times. So I think there's a certain amount of that as the population continues to age, as we get more and more educated, and as people, I think, feel like they have more freedom to make these types of decisions as to when and where and how they live. Some of these transformational life events that matter for the economy and matter for consumer spending, they just happen at a different time. So I think that's one element. I think the other huge one has to do with just how each generation has been embracing technology and the more digital worlds. Going to my kids, like it actually panics me that my four-year-old can purchase things on Amazon. <laughs> like I have to stop him. He goes to add to cart but he knows he's not allowed to actually purchase, but I don't know if I'm always successful at that. <laughs> so oh, it gets worse. Wait till your 15 and 18 year olds actually can do it. And then you see all the boxes showing up. All the boxes. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. Worse. So it's just, there's this idea of instant gratification where my kids will ask for something and they think they can just press a button and it shows up at the doorstep. And it kind of does, which is, is part of it. Rather, where in the past you would say, okay, I really want to buy this. Let's go to a store. Let's think about how we're going to get it. And then it's just a bigger process. I also think there's just naturally a lot more price discovery now because so much is done online. You have a much better understanding of relative prices, which ultimately is a disinflationary story, right? With more competition, more online competition in particular, where you have this price discovery that ultimately depresses prices. But that's interesting too, right? You can understand your budget a little bit better if you understand prices really quickly. And if you feel like you have some control of those prices because you can shop and you can, again, make decisions based off of how you want to spend your money and, and in what types of products. So that's another really interesting one that I think just will continue to play out. Again, not necessarily a story for today. We have inflation, but this technological changes, the digitalization, all of that is disinflationary. So- the two things that we see in our data that I don't know yet how permanent they are and or how much they were just like a kind of an aftershock reaction to kind of pandemic circumstances, and they're opposite ends of the spectrum. The first one I think that makes a bit more sense is the, the rate of technology adoption among older Americans over the last two mm. last years, right? Mm -hmm. Because if, and yeah. if we look everything from like Alexa to Venmo to telehealth, of course, is the big one. You know, they were the at-risk population and they were also the biggest tech Luddites. So yeah, they grew a high percentage off of a low base, but they were kind of more or less forced to adopt technology because they were the most likely to be stuck at home and largely had a decent experience with it and turned out it wasn't as hard. And so the, at least that wave of people are going to be at least a bit more tech enabled than they were before. Now, will that continue? Of course. Well, certainly people who are tech natives are going to grow into being older, but I think we will see a continued sort of acceleration mm -hmm. of tech adoption. We tell our customers this all the time to stop thinking about digital as just a, a young person's game because it, it isn't as much. Mm -hmm. The other end of the spectrum is that again, with teenagers, my kids like to go like to the mall and mm -hmm. store, right? Which is like completely counterintuitive to all these other trends. And, and I, have, I have kind of two theories about it. One is partly just because they were locked at home for so long. It's, it's an like, activity. It's, it's an activity <laughs> to get out of the house and it's social. Yeah. But it almost, and I, well, I'll be more fascinated to watch how this plays out over time, is that that what you touched on, which is sort of that instant gratification, Amazon can deliver something to me in 24 hours, or I can actually drive to the mm. store, grab it off the shelf and have it in 45 minutes, right? Like that's, I, I get a bit of that from my kids right now. It's And, I, and again, I'm, I'm careful to like, project the focus group of my family to the full U.S. Yeah. population, but these will be interesting things to watch. Are there other things that you 
saw either in the economy or in your role in the visibility you have at MasterCard? Were there other things that you saw kind of change about consumers during the pandemic that you think are here to stay? Yeah. And I actually think this is one of the areas where what you do is really, really critical. It's like intersection between the survey data and some of the high frequency data that we're looking at, I think is really powerful because the behavioral changes were so fast with the pandemic. People were changing their spending on the day, depending on what they felt from the pandemic or their willingness to engage or their risk profile. And basically having the kind of confirmation between high-frequency data and survey data, I think is a huge win. In terms of what we saw and what we're seeing now, I mean, the speed by which people start to buy things again, like retail therapy during the pandemic and during the quarantine period was exceptional and I think clearly exceeded expectations. So it was things, of course, you know, renovating your home office. Maybe that was more of a necessity in a hybrid world. But you also have luxury items like jewelry that did really well. Where are people going (laughs) with all this new jewelry during the pandemic? But it's the idea that there was presumably this kind of retail therapy stimulus checks were coming in. You couldn't go out and travel. You couldn't go out and experience the same way during the heart of the pandemic. So you bought a lot more things. And some of those things ended up being a little bit more of a luxury reach type items, which was interesting. I would say now it's all about experiences. We're seeing pretty exceptionally strong growth in travel, in lodging, in restaurants, like consistently strong in restaurants. People are really still keen to go back out into the economy to travel and to have those moments that they couldn't have during the pandemic. And some of that could be driven by pent up birthday parties or wedding celebrations. I don't know how many Weddings you have gone to where for me, they were scheduled, you know, 2020 and then they were canceled. And now you end up going to a wedding and there are babies there too going down the aisle because they just kind of like, we we waited for the party, but not for our life, which is kind of nice. So I think the spending that we're seeing now, the consumer behavior we're seeing now, I think is part of this unleashing of demand for activities and experiences they couldn't have before. The question, the big question is how long that lasts. And I think that is, Partly a function of, of course, a function of the business cycle and the capacity to spend in terms of income creation, in terms of other forms of purchasing power. And then it's also, I think, and what we're learning more and more, it's also a function of the supply side of the economy, right? We have right now tons of demand for all that travel, but there's not as much supply. You hear from airlines about difficulty actually getting all the planes off the ground, meeting all this consumer demand, and you're seeing prices rise, right? If you look at airline tickets, that's all indicative of this just unleashing of demand for those those types of spend. Yeah, I mean, again, in terms of relatability, I just had thought this this morning. It seems like every week, another friend of mine and their family on Facebook is traveling Europe. Like they're in, yeah. you know? And, well, look at the exchange and, rate. I mean, that helps. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not even sure they thought of, uh, like we went to Maybe Europe not. Maybe that's the economist thinking about it. Maybe average person. <laughs> well, we went to Europe with our family this summer. It was the first we'd taken our kids overseas but it was a trip we postponed in 2020, right? So I think there is just a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And I think there's probably, it's probably somewhat analogous, I bet, to what we saw in the large home electronics category in the beginning part of COVID is like, be be careful to like, 
think about the comps, right? Because mm-hmm. I think you probably a ton of people had pent up trips this summer. Mm-hmm. Apparently most of my friends to Europe, but, but that's not something <laughs> you do every year. And it's not even necessarily right. about the money. It's about the logistics and you've got to go for two, three weeks and it's hard to get away and your kids are pulled out of their activities. So I'm probably skeptical that this is a trend that's here to stay, that all my friends are going to go to Europe every summer, it just all happened to sort of converge this summer. So a bigger thing that I wrote about recently, and I know you saw it, and I'd love to get your take on, feel free to shoot holes in it. Another quote crisis, I guess, that we don't talk a lot about in the country is a population crisis. We have Mm. literally the slowest population growth in the entire history of the country since it was founded and probably before last year. 0.1% population growth, an economy that's trying to grow three plus percent doesn't feel tenable in the long term. There's a bunch of reasons for that. Some of those reasons are very good. For example, people are having fewer kids which isn't necessarily in a vacuum good, but that's a byproduct of generations and generations of women being empowered in their careers and in their choices to pursue things other than being a homemaker. So of course, our birth rates are lower, therefore our population's getting older, and we have a significant deficit of immigration in this country relative to what it normally would be based on Mm -hmm. sort of typical trends. Mm -hmm. Do you worry about stuff like that? That feels like a thing that the impact it will have on the economy, other than maybe some short-term labor shortages and things. Do you think about like that long-term of sort of an existential change in our country? Mm -hmm. And is it all good? Is it all bad? What's the take on that? Well, I think last year, as you mentioned, it was particularly acute how much population slowed. And that was a function of the pandemic, particularly with immigration. So let's assume that rates of immigration return to where they had been trending pre-pandemic. That helps. The birth rate story, that that is probably more of a secular trend, as you noted. Again, maybe the pandemic created a little bit more of a hiccup in terms of the timing of that. But still, I would say, okay, that's probably more of a secular trend. So when you have an aging population, when you have slowing population growth, you do tend to have an economy whose potential growth rate is going to be lower. So what you could achieve each year from economic expansion naturally goes down because you just don't have as many people doing it, right? So when you think about GDP, it's really simply the number of people working times their output, their productivity per person. So if you have fewer people available to work, your job growth is going to settle at a lower pace. And you have to hope that maybe those people who are working are just that much more productive in order to offset that loss of jobs. And it's possible. It's possible that we get that type of productivity growth. I mean, maybe we have great technological advancements. We have seen some real acceleration of that on the back of the pandemic. So maybe that's a little bit of a support in at least in the near term. But, you know, you could look at other economies where they faced the similar story. Look at Europe. Look at Japan. Japan's probably the better example where they've had dismal population trajectory and they don't really have much immigration and their birth rates are even lower than in the U.S. And you certainly have seen this kind of continued downgrading to its potential growth rate. And it's something that they've been trying to solve for. You know, if you look at the policy changes in Japan, one of their goals is to just get a lot more women in the workforce and more engagement in the workforce. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that, you know, I'm interested to watch is sort of, and this could have medium-term impact on the on the housing market, which is, again, sort of, quote, unprecedented, is the mobility of workers now, right? Or the required mobility, right? I don't have to move yeah. for my yeah. job, or I can move and keep my job. If, like, the housing prices where I live, we're seeing this already, like, to some extent in, in our hometown of Pittsburgh, where we're seeing a lot of people move here, because, you know, from places like Seattle, where they can get... Yeah a two acre piece of land and a 4,000 square foot house for under a million dollars, you'd pay $5 million for that in Seattle, right? So like, 
Yeah, I know. All right. And, and of course, we're all angry. We're all angry about it unless we're the ones trying to sell our homes because it's right, driving right. up all of our prices. But but yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to watch if remote work is here to stay. And I do believe in some at least hybrid sense it is that that could have a historically unprecedented impact on like housing. Right. Because it dilutes, I guess, the concentration of housing prices in one place or another. So. I think it already has had that impact. I mean, <laughs> to your point, you've seen an incredible amount of movement post-pandemic, much higher rates of home sales than you would expect. And you saw the migration to areas that weren't necessarily benefiting or doing well as well prior to the pandemic. So think about when you look at home price appreciation, one of the states that have had the fastest home price appreciation is Idaho. Boise City in particular, where prices are up, I think, 300% from 2000, where income is only up, I think, you know, just over hundred percent during that home. So, you know, you've had massive movements in some of these markets that I think were a function of the pandemic where people kind of looked around and said, if I'm not going to be in the office as much, why do I have to be so close to the city center? Why do I have to live in this type of real estate? I can move, even if I have to commute, even if it's a longer commute, I'm not doing that commute as often. Or in a lot of companies, you just stay hybrid. So it's this kind of, it's a lot more flexibility. It's a lot more ownership of how you work and therefore where you live. And that also very much matters for how you think about people's budgets and their ability to navigate the economic cycle. People's cost of livings went down relatively for some people if they've relocated, right? I mean, if they've kept the same income, but they relocated to a, an area with a lower cost of living, they haven't had to pay as much on their real estate. Now, of course, in those markets where so many people moved, you've had this massive home price appreciation. So like, it's all kind of going to balance out in the end, but you've seen these really big shifts that were fascinating to see play out in the data. Yeah. I say all the time, we're kind of living through like the greatest social experiment in the history <laughs> of mankind, right? It's like all of these things, just where, where they're going to go. It'll be so, so fun to watch and interesting to watch, a little scary to watch, but very envious of like the perch you get to sit in with the information you have access to. Uh, <laughs> it's got, you're going to, yeah, it's got to be incredibly stimulating. Well, Michelle, I know you've listened to our podcast. You told me that if you were lying, I appreciate the No, I have no. been listening. They're great. I love them. And I know what's coming next. Yeah. So I've got five, <laughs> I've got five questions for you and a sixth bonus one, okay. uh, which I came up with as I was just sitting listening to you. First and foremost, how confident are you in your ability to perform basic first aid? Oh, what are my choices? <laughs> yeah. So it's going to be, well, essentially very to not at all. The answer choices are very confident, somewhat confident, not at all confident. Unfortunately, I would say not at all confidence. I did take a CPR class when I was pregnant with my first child. So I feel like I have a sense of maybe what I had to do for infant CPR, but I'm embarrassed to say I'm not confident. Well, my mom was a paramedic and I went to all the CPR training things like all through and then I was a Boy Scout and all that. But the question is, is could I retain it right. or do, do I remember it? And then, of course, probably that was 35, 40 years ago. So who knows? The rules have probably entirely changed. I'm in the somewhat <laughs> to probably not confident category. Number two, I came up with this one this morning because this is a very prevalent conversation in my house. Do you pre-wash your dishes before putting them in the dishwasher? That is a big debate in my household as well. I do. My husband does not. And his view is that the detergent grabs on to it better. I don't know. I personally think that washing it ends up getting a better result. But yes, so I do. <laughs> but it is a debate. 
Interestingly, that's the same sort of bifurcation in my house. Um, <laughs> although I've given up, I've just decided to go along because it wasn't a battle I felt worth fighting because my wife, Tara, was like, is just vehement about pre-washing the dishes. And I initially sort of objected and then I would sneak and not do it and I'd get caught. And so now mm, I've just, I've been trained it. to do it. It's just not yeah. worth it. I'm not trained. <laughs> 32% of people, and I forgot to give the results of the first question, which I'll go back and do in a second. Do you pre-wash your dishes before putting them in the in a dishwasher? 32% of people say yes, always. 34% say sometimes if they're really dirty. And 15% say no, that's what the washer is for. Mm. So I'm actually surprised by that. I thought more people just put them in the dishwasher. Although if we yeah. cross-tab that by some gender and age, I bet <laughs> see some differences. How confident are you in your ability to perform first aid? 29% of people say they're very confident. Hopefully you're around one of those people when you get hurt. And basically 50% of people are in the somewhat confident and 20% not confident at all. So pretty divided country on that one. How much do you like to know about a movie before you watch it? A lot. Yes. I watch trailers. I read about it. I do my research before I watch a movie. <laughs> so again, this is another kind of disagreement with my, my wife wants to know like the whole plot and everything. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. like if somebody's going to die in the movie and my one daughter's the same way, they want to know before the movie starts so they don't get too emotionally invested in the person. Yep. I'm the opposite. I, I like the less I can know about something. I love the surprise. And I think that's probably a bit of like, how much do you like surprises is probably a proxy for that. 16% of people say as much as possible, 53%, I think, which is kind of what you're saying is like a bit of info, a bit of background. I don't know, maybe, or maybe you're in the as much as possible category. Maybe uh, in between. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of enjoy the surprises of it, I guess. I will do the homework on like the reviews of the movie before I watch mm. it, like, but I don't want to know anything about the plot. Would you rather travel to a familiar place or somewhere you've never been? If you had to mm. pick you can take one trip next summer, would it be a place you've never been or somewhere where you know that's familiar to you? I would go a place I've never been, but again, I would do my research. <laughs> so I would have a sense of where I was going and what I was picking, but yes, I would want to try something new. That's the most common answer. 39% of people say somewhere new. 37% say it doesn't matter, like flip a coin. I'm actually in the familiar. I do like new places, but I think when I'm trying to go on vacation, familiarity is just like less stress for me. Like, okay, yeah. I know where I'm going to stay. I know where I'm going to eat. I know what I'm kind of signing up for. You're not sort of like, man, I hope the Airbnb doesn't suck or whatever. Like that I, maybe I, I just kind of stress about that stuff. Okay. Last one. And this is very importantly worded the following way to not ask you your opinion on the following, but how you feel <laughs> about most other people, which is, do you think most parents with multiple kids do or do not have a favorite child? <laughs> I know it's a great. Okay, question. Let's be very clear. This is not me. I'm not. I no, love no, my no. children. You and I love our kids me. absolutely equally, <laughs> and I sincerely do. My kids are incredibly different, and I love them yeah. for that. I love the. Yeah. I love. Yeah. Do you think most? Um, do? You know, I think most. I'm going to say no with like a disclaimer, which is that I think people, parents, will have certain affinities to their kids for different things. Like there'll be certain activities they want to do with certain kids, or there's the one kid that you know you're going to get the best cuddles from and the affection from. And so I think it's just, I don't know. I would say the answer is no, but there's differences and parents kind of respond to that. I don't know. Yeah, that is, was a very hand-waving response. But. No, no, no. It's actually, no. So this is where I love my job is the answers we're looking for aren't the actually the answers to the question, right? It's more yeah. how people answer, I think, is sometimes more insightful than what they say. But 57% of people, so clearly more than half, think that most people have a favorite child, right? 
but I don't have the data in front of me. And if I, I may just go out and ask it anyway, it's like, if you ask someone, if they have a favorite child, I'll bet you it's like 10% of people who will. We see that all the time. One of my favorite studies we did, this was like 2015 or 16 is we asked people, do you say and do things on social media to make you more popular and likable among your friends? Right. And like 20% of people said, yes, I kind of do it. And 80% are like, no, I never do it. And I'm, and I'm butchering the numbers a bit, but you get a sense of the ratio. Yeah. But then we asked, do you think your friends say things on social media to make themselves more popular and likable? And the numbers were flipped. Like, yeah, <laughs> everyone, everyone else does it, but I don't. I right? you know, That's yeah. a very, very common human impulse. That's a great way of phrasing the question. I mean, I think with, with surveys, it's so important to ask the question in a way that you're going to get responses you can do something with and that you can really, yeah, it's great. Yeah. One of the, one one of the best luxuries we have at our company is because we can ask so many questions and we're almost to Mm -hmm. a half questions we have in our system at this point is that we can just test different things, right? Like we can just throw it out there using this word and that word and compare them to each other. And, And some of the most interesting insights we get in into people are how they answer different questions differently, yeah. right? Yeah. Less about sort of what their specific choice was, but how those choices change. So that's cool. I have one more question. This is not a poll question. Okay. But I'm hoping that in your super senior role at your company, that you have access to the person who can solve the following problem for me, which is my MasterCard expires next month. And I am dreading the fact that I'm going to have to go to every single website to which that card is registered to change it when I get the new one. So can we get to a place where the expiration date is not part of the registration for your car? Can we do mm. that? Can you make that happen for me? Because it's I'm just absolutely dreaded. <laughs> like all the places I'm going to have to go change my. I know you. Probably. Let me let me take that to the top of the house. We'll see. Please what we can do. do. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. I'd like to hear about it at an earnings call, actually, because it's a, it's a <laughs> huge, huge existential problem for me. Fair. Well, fair. Michelle, this was awesome. I'm going to beg you to come back another time because, as we know, like. Everything we're talking about is changing by the minute, right? Mm -hmm. And we're all trying to prognosticate and forecast about where all of it's going. And hopefully we're right about the good parts and wrong about the bad ones. And, you know, but we, we, we won't know. And it's just, I'm so envious of the job you've got and the visibility you have. It's super cool. And I'm glad we get to collaborate at times. That's really fun. So thank you so much for joining me today. And yes, I will ask you to come back sometime in the future when the next wave of crises and uncertainties are in front of us to elaborate on them. That sounds great. I will take you up for that. And I love how you just said economics is cool. That was my interpretation of what you just said there. <laughs> so 100%. It is, it is, as I said at the beginning, this is yeah. kind of like my favorite topic because it, it is, yeah. it's nerdy enough to like scratch that part of your brain, but it's also yeah. like super, super relatable. Like we yeah. live in, you know, we're all shoppers and we're all, we're all in it. Yeah, we're all in it. We're all in it. Well, thank you again. Enjoy the the waning days of summer and as you head into fall. And I, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Sounds great. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. 